You're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf Terry, and Luke Romsdorf Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. And on today's episode, we're talking about the book that started it all The Cat Who Could Read Backwards. The Cat Who Could Read Backwards. So, this was published when? 1966. The very first one she wrote. Excellent. And is there an audiobook version of this one? Yes, but it is only available on CD. Really? Where'd you find that? I went and looked it up in a couple of locations because I knew I had seen them before. (laughs) My mother also really likes audiobooks, so I know that at some point she had listened to the early books on audio. What I found out was that they aren't available digitally, but they are available on CD. Let's give a little bit of synopsis about this book, if you don't mind. Uh, This is... A very dense book, I understand. So, For something so short, it honestly took me longer to write the synopsis than it did to read the book. <laughs> so I will do my best um, understanding that this is, of course, a mystery with twists and turns. This is very, very spoilery. Um, Spoiler alert for a book that's almost 50 years old. Over, I think. Over, you no, know, it is over 50 years old. Luke, Luke can do math. <laughs> uh, spoiler, but still spoiler alert because you never know. You never know. If, if, if you don't want to have this book spoiled spoiled for you, stop now, go read it, then come back and join the, and join the discussion. All right, let's pause and give everyone a chance to read the book. Okay, great. You have read it. I have not. True. So full disclosure on that. So I will be interjecting with some uh, color commentary and quips <laughs> here and there uh, for this wonderful tale that has been weaved by us. So... My dear, please go right ahead. Absolutely. All right. So here is, here we go. So in The Cat Who Could Read Backwards, we meet Jim Quilleran, spelled with a Q-W-I-L-L-E-R-A-N, who is a, (laughs) as he will tell you, it's a good Scottish spelling. Ah. And he is a former award-winning reporter who is returning to newspaper work after a bout of alcoholism and depression derailed his career. He's assigned not the hard-hitting crime beat that he wants, but the local art beat. Now, it's the 60s, so this is a crazy scene. He meets artists. But the fact that there's an art scene in a paper in general, that's kind of mind-blowing considering... You're considering nowadays when... Print journalism nowadays. Yeah. And, well, and the fact that this is a, this is a major, major beat. Um, Quillerin is not, is not a critic. He simply is the, for lack of a better term, color, color commentator for the art world. He goes out, he meets the artists, he does the glad, glad handing. He doesn't have much of a stake in this. His his job is really to go make friends for the paper, as the editor says at one point. Now, we should also, I, I can't remember if you mentioned it or not, but this is not set, this is set in a random metropolis city. Exactly. There is some mention about Quill's boyhood in Chicago, so we know it's not Chicago. Okay. We know it's not Detroit, because Detroit gets mentioned as somewhere else. And we know it's not New York because New York is mentioned as somewhere else. Quillerin also mentions living in New York. So it is an odd amalgamation of all of these major cities. This allows us to not have anybody saying, oh, but that's such and such a place. Right. Or that's not what that looked like at that point. Blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so anyway, so Quill is going around. He's meeting these artists and these gallery owners and these art teachers who, of course, all hate each other and then bond over their mutual hate of the, of the paper's art quit, art critic. The paper, by the way, is called The Daily Fluxion, and it's <laughs> its competitor, The Morning Rampage. The Morning... Oh. So these are the two major papers that are competing for stories, and... You need to read The Morning Rampage. I don't think I do. <laughs> Good lord. It's a very aggressive news publication. It absolutely is. So within this world, the Fluxion has the better known of the two art critic of the two art critics. It only get, the names only get better from here. Folks. <laughs> absolutely. So while the Morning Rampage has a little old bitty 
whose name I don't remember because it's that forgettable, a, a little old biddy who, who just loves everything. Mm-hmm. The Fluxion has George Bonifield Mount Clemens III, who is absolutely <laughs> as pretentious as he sounds. <laughs> and he mostly pans the local art scene with the exceptions of artists handled through the Lambeth Gallery, most particularly Zoe Lambeth, who's the wife of the gallery owner Earl Lambeth, and a reclusive Italian modernist known as Scrano. <laughs> Scrano paints triangles. This is a. This is. It's the 1960s. It's modern art. So now, triangles are. Now, a thing. does does Scrano purposely get the R rolled in the book, or are you just doing that for effect? Oh, I'm absolutely doing that for the fact. And former opera singer, you give me an R, I'm going Still to roll. Still current it. opera singer, eh. I would say. Eh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that later. Anyway, anyway moving on. Scrano. So, he paints triangles. Scrano paints triangles. <laughs> <laughs> so. GBM3, as I'm going to refer to him, because I'm not saying that name. Former quarterback for the the Washington football team. (laughs) He'd be very offended about that. So GBM3, (laughs) it's rumored, is a former painter, but there's an accent that's never discussed that leads to him wearing a crude prosthetic hand. So he doesn't paint anymore, and he dictates his columns for the paper. Somehow or another, Quill goes and charms everybody, and he's even invited to dinner with GBM3. And at this dinner, GBM3 introduces Quill to the titular cat. He introduces Quill to his Siamese cat, Kaoko Kung, who is affectionately known as Coco. Coco is an <laughs> exceptionally intelligent cat, and he even reads the newspaper headlines as long as they're fresh. This is back in the day when people had two, when people had two editions a day. It was a morning and an evening you edition. You had a morning so and yeah. an evening edition. So when the evening edition would arrive and the ink might still be a little bit warm, <laughs> that's when the paper would be put down for the cat to read. And of course, the cat reads backwards hence the title of the book the cat who read back back. ding 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 it's early on in the book so we get that out of the way um (laughs) then the cat goes off and devours his own gourmet meal of hand-cut beef and warmed gravy attractively arranged on a plate she's very obsessed with things being attractively arranged on a plate well it sounds like this cat eats better than we do (laughs) hands down (laughs) certainly takes more time with presentation than we do i want to be coco (laughs) now and despite the um, and, and despite the prosthetic hand, uh, GBM three manages to then pre- prepare for himself and Quillerin a very lovely gourmet meal. And once he has uh, plied Quill with food, GBM three offers him uh, the downstairs apartment in this uh, in, in in this Victorian house where he lives, uh, where he where GBM three has the upper stories has the upper stories for his own apartments. And then there are two apartments uh, made out of the ground floor where you've got one in the front and one in the back, which was a pretty popular thing to do with those giant old houses. Something that you uh, see around here in around Denver, the too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's where they had made them into apartments. And he wanted to have, he wants to have things looking occupied, which is great for Quillerin because, of course, in these early books, Quillerin is constantly trying to find a place to live. <laughs> So this is his first foray. He doesn't really have a great place to live. He's living in a hotel. Mm-hmm. So getting the offer of 50 bucks a month for, for rent to live in this downstairs apartment and run a couple of errands, deal sounds pretty good. 50 bucks in the 60s, that's that's a, 50 bucks anytime. That's a steal. Yes. <laughs> but even in the 60s, that's a really great deal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the trade-off is, yes, you've got to run some errands. But yeah, sure. what are you going to do? Um so one of those errands uh, starts off the those errands start off the very next day after he moves in. Uh, he's asked kind of obviously to take the ta- to take the tape recordings of GBM3's columns 
to the paper office where, of course, he's going anyway. It's less of an well, issue. They both happen to work there. They so. both, you know, they both happen to work there. And it so happens that across the street from the from the newspaper office is a travel agent where GBM3 has booked a plane ticket and he needs Quill to pick it up for him and then bring it home. The, he's not being asked to do anything really out of his way. It's just these are errands that GBM3 is not going to necessarily be able to go out and do easily himself without mm-hmm. the use of, uh, of one of his hands. The trade-off is that. And Quill reluctantly does the errands and more enthusiastically than gets to spend time with Coco because he invents games and enjoys translating the various yowls and expressions that Coco (laughs) makes uh, that are, of course, written out in the book. Now, GBM3 is going away on a trip. He's supposed to go to New York for about a week, I think. Okay. And while he's away, Earl Lambeth is found murdered with his own chisel in the upstairs office of the gallery. The previous episode, I outlined a very grisly murder. This one just sounds terrible to me. Yeah. That's a, uh, again, as I said, a lot of these murders murders are very up close and personal. These Mm -hmm. are not, these are not getting killed by snipers or she doesn't do a lot of poisonings. Um, They happen, but most of them are very, are very graphic and very, very, and very direct. So Earl Lambeth has been found murdered with his own chisel, which by the way, he made all the picture frames for the gallery, which is why he would have had a chisel in his Mm -hmm. office. And much of the gallery's artwork has been vandalized and a potentially valuable painting is missing. Mm. Now it is... This is this is a plot point, and it's potentially valuable because it is half of a painting that was damaged in shipping, and it is a knockoff version of a Degas. It's supposed to be the only time that this particular artist painted a ballet dancer and a monkey. Previously, he would only paint a ballet dancer or a monkey, never the two together except for this one time. And of course, that's the painting that got ripped in half uh, during shipping. So Earl has managed to find the half of the ballet dancer, which is the more valuable half because the dancer is the larger part of the painting and Mm -hmm. it has the artist's signature. But if he were able to find the other half of the painting and combine it, he would have a painting that was worth in 1960s dollars, $150,000. Modern value, according to the inflation calendar calculator, excuse me, is more than $1.2 million. So... Pretty much a pretty good yeah, uh, motive. A pretty good, a pretty good motive for murder, right there. Yeah, I would say so. So Quill and the art community then rally around Zoe Lambeth, including her childhood friend Butchie Bolton. No <laughs> points for guessing which team Butchie plays for, by the way. Uh, um, they're not even trying to. Not hide even it. remotely at this point. Um, and not, they not aged well. At all. Yeah, didn't age well on that one. Uh, at the and same that's time, not a nick- sorry, that's not a nickname. To, just to be clear, that's not like they're calling. Oh, her real name is. You know, whatever. Her real name Belinda has, or something. If she has a real name, nobody uses it. Everybody calls her Butchie. Oh, jeez. So it's it's never most of the time when there's a nickname, you're right. Somebody says, "Oh, her real name's this," but nobody's called her that since grade school. Mm-hmm. Um, this they don't even bother with that. It's just she's Butchie Bolton. What cruel parents! Absolutely. Now, at the same time that they're rallying around Zoe Lambeth, they're also spreading rumors that she received all the stellar art reviews that she got from GBM three by sleeping with him. Uh, Which does become fairly suspicious since her art and the art of a junk sculptor, he prefers the term thingist, it's the 60s, give me a break, (laughs) um, who is known as 9-0. 9-0. 9-0. There's a long string of numbers, but 9-0 is the short term. 9-0 and Scrano. 9-0, Scrano, Zoe Lambeth, blah, blah, blah. Uh, (laughs) But those are the only two artists whose work is not not damaged during the the break-in. So, uh, so, uh, so those are that's that's the big suspicion. We've got a motive for murder. We just need to figure out who. Now, George. Uh, now, GBM three returns to town, and appears 
quite frankly, singularly unconcerned about the murder. Hmm. Um, suspicious indeed. Absolutely. He then encourages Quill to, to interview Butchie, who teaches sculpture at the City Art School, and to attend a happening, which is hosted hmm. by the School of Art. It's so 60s. It's an art event where one might allow things to happen or cause things to happen or simply allow things to happen upon one. Um, the thingist is going to a happening. The thingist is going <laughs> to a happening. And the thingist is having one of their sculptures featured as part of the happening. Unfortunately, shoddy construction, I mean, it is a school, so they didn't really have that much of a budget. Shoddy construction causes the sculpture to topple. And when Nino tries to save his sculpture, sculpture he also falls to his death. Hmm. So we're we're into the now. Granted, it took 80, 90 pages before we got to the first death. Um, this is this is another thing about the cozy mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of cozy mysteries, they will, it, you know, the murders happen right off, and then you spend the rest of the book trying to figure out who did it. But in this one, it takes a little bit longer. It to takes get there. a. You, she she is very determined to establish the world before. Before anybody dies. Sure. She wants you to care about where they are and what and what yeah, they sure. matter. And, and be invested in what's going on. Exactly. So now we've lost Earl Lambeth and we've lost Nino. Not Nino. Not Nino. <laughs> and Quill immediately begins to suspect foul play, particularly a jealous Butchie Bolton, as more rumors link Zoe to Nino. And if you can't figure out that Butchie obviously also has a thing for Zoe... <sighs> like she's I said, she's the only straight woman in this thing, so of course everyone wants her. Oh, there are lots of other straight women, but Zoe's the only one that apparently has any has any charm in the art world. Ah, who knew? Yeah. There's there's another one mentioned, but that it's a whole side plot that really has nothing to do with the main murder mystery. Read the book for yourself; you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Moving on, so <laughs> Zoe then invites Quill to dinner, which is making everybody jealous, I'm sure. And when he returns to his apartment, he finds Coco in the hallway. Now he's he'd been cat sitting for Coco while mm-hmm. GBM3 was out of town, but to find Coco downstairs in his apartment is a little bit odd. Um, so he follows Coco to the back patio of the house where he then discovers GBM3 who has been stabbed to death with his own kitchen knife. Oh no. And this is how Coco comes to live with Quill, who continues to have suspicions about the three deaths. Sure. Led by Coco, in theory, to retrieve the cat's velvet cushion and minty mouse toy. Yeah, it's <laughs> hand, it, it's it's Mint that GBM3 grew on his windowsill and then tied in a cashmere sock for the cat toy. Yeah, this the cat, cat doesn't just eat better than us. This cat lives better than most people. Yes, yes. He has the blue velvet cushion to prove it. <laughs> well, and the mint encrusted cashmere sock. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but as he's, to be honest, snooping around in GBM3's uh-huh. apartment, he discovers a hidden closet containing racks of paintings, oh. including... The other half of Earl Lambeth's paintings, a fact that he confirms by bringing Zoe Lambeth up to the apartment to 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 verify what he's seeing. Okay. He's not an artist. He doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Zoe Lambeth then notes that GBM3 was one of the people who was also trying to buy Earl's half. So another suspicion then layers onto that. Quill and Coco continue to explore the house, and they find their way to the third supposedly unused apartment. It's, GBM3 told them it was used for storage. While they are down there, it contains some mysterious robot paintings signed by someone called O-Narks. 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 And Zoe confesses to Quill at this same time that GBM3 has been trying to get her to leave Earl for him. An attention, honestly, she encouraged because it was the 60s. He was praising her paintings and she was afraid if she didn't, then he would stop praising her paintings. She wouldn't sell she wouldn't artwork, blah, blah, blah. Art world. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the bigger, the bigger problem is that GBM3 owns the Lambeth Gallery. 
He is a secret partner. Wait a second. He is the secret owner of the gallery. So he has been using his he has been using and abusing his position as art critic to promote his own artist's work. There there's some conflicts of interest here. Just a few, and the paper would be in big trouble if they actually oh, managed that managed to get that word out. So of course. Nobody nobody decides that that's information that they're going to necessarily share. Um, the police then discover that GBM3 might not have taken the flight that he claims to have and oh. is the likely murderer of Earl, although nothing is ever proven. GBM3's own murderer, however, is uncovered by Quill when he returns to that third apartment led by Coco to discover mm-hmm. the works of supposed recluse Scrano and the previous robot works by Onark's missing. Coco traces Scrano's signature backwards, revealing that... O-N-A-R-C-S, which conveniently oh. reveals Scrano backwards. <laughs> if, you, if you take the soft sound of narcs, it then becomes the S sound of Scrano, forward, backward. And that's oh. the, re- the revelation of the mystery. Now, now, if, the cat, if there was a, not a backwards reading cat, we wouldn't know we this. We wouldn't know this. Nobody would have figured that out. <laughs> Onarks, the mysterious Onarks we have never seen before, conveniently oh, appears oh, and tries to kill Quill, who's uh, before being foiled by so Coco. So Onark shows up. Oh, Onark, oh, wow. sho- Onark shows up out of the darkness. He's been trying to clean out the Scrano paintings. Typical beca- Onarks out of the darkness. Out of the darkness. But Coco attacks him and manages to uh, and, and manages to take him down so that Quill can tie him up with his belt. Quill loses a lot of belts in these first couple that's, of books. Well, that's very practical a way of doing it, but. Wow, and go Coco for jumping on to start to, you know, defend your new owner. That's Absolutely. Great. Go Coco. So what it turns out happened is that when GBM3 lost his hand, he couldn't paint anymore. So he found somebody who had a similar style to the Scrano paintings that he'd been secretly painting himself. He hired this uh, this other person who had a similar style to paint in this to paint the Scrano style, so that GBM three could continue his very lucrative lifestyle as Scrano's only American agent, hmm. um, using the other using the the actual artist as kind of his 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 mule to transport the paintings back and forth between Metropolis of No Name and New York and wherever else the paintings are going, and it turns out that GBM three decided that he'd had enough of this. He wanted to kill off. He wanted to kill off Narcs and therefore Scrano to increase the value of the Scrano paintings. So lots of uh, lots of questionable ethics here. Yes, as a, not lots only of as a human, but as an arts journalist, especially. Yes, there's there's backstabbing and double backstabbing, and Narcs figures out what's going on. And so what it turns out happens is uh, GBM three is waiting to kill Narcs, but Narcs knows it's coming, so Narcs comes and kills GBM three first. Hmm. Uh, it's Quillerin's theory is that he that uh, Narks knew it was coming because a GBM three always wore a very distinctive verbena scent. Okay. Lime. A what? Lime. Lime. Yeah, that's what verbena is. I, so it's a uh, it's a type of cologne. It's a type of cologne. Okay, lime. Yeah. The way you said verbena scent, and this is you as speaking as a costumer professionally, and me as just a, a meathead going. So is that a vest? No, no, it's cologne. It's a cologne. Very distinctive cologne that he's wearing. That he's wearing that lime he, cologne. Yes, and you'd think that somebody would be smart who wears a very distinctive cologne would be smart enough to try and wash it off before you were about to go stand in the dark and try and surprise someone to kill them. He's going to smell like a margarita. Yeah, you don't want to be <laughs> bringing anything in there. Exactly. 
All the plans, of course, of Narx, who's, who, Narx was trying to take over as Scrano's main agent, which since Narx could actually do the paintings, he could continue to paint, uh, paint as Scrano indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Although there probably would have been some issues since apparently GBM3 actually designed the, lo- the look of the paintings to keep them consistent. But Still, yeah. Either way, everyone gets foiled by Quill being nosy. And Quill and Coco go off to have a can of salmon happily in their, happily in their apartment. So another case solved. Another by case solved. Solved by Quill. First case. The first case solved by Quill and Coco, mostly by him being nosy and Quill being and and Coco being a cat. <laughs> Quill being nosy, Coco being a cat. Interesting. So we so who are our victims? We have Earl Lambeth. We lost Earl Lambeth, who was killed by GBM three uh, in in a potentially jealous rage, jealous over art, jealous over his wife, mm-hmm. all of those things, um, with a chisel to the neck. That still sounds just so It's really awful. God. And even though Earl was probably a bit of a crook because most gallery owners were, he, he never put prices on his paintings. So, ah. you know, he could sell something for $800 and tell the artist it only, you know, give the artist their commission and say it, say it only sold for four. So here's your $100 commission, blah, mm, blah, blah. Interesting. Okay. Um, our second death um, is Nino the Sculptor, which does turn out to just be an accident. Mm. Uh, despite Butchie Bolton's presence close to Nino at the time of his death, she actually um, injured and scraped up her hands badly mm. enough. She had to go to the hospital mm-hmm. trying to save him, but the the sculpture uh, ripped her palms apart, so she had to go get stitches. Okay. Um, and then we also had, of course, the and best, of course the best name of the book, George Bonifield Mount Clemens the Third, art critic. <laughs> and he was killed by Oscar Narks, the uh, secret the uh, the secret painter of the Scrano triangles. And Narx is arrested and assume, and presumably goes to trial and jail. It, we really don't get much follow through on that one. It's well, just, he's arrested. That's, that's he's arrested. We, that's we assume that we, we assume that everything works in in this day and in this particular day and age that everything works the way it's supposed to. So Earl was stabbed with a chisel. Uh, GBM three was stabbed. He was just stabbed with a with his own kitchen knife. Actually, oh, that's right. His own kitchen knife. That's right. And then Nino, he's falling while trying to save a sculpture. But exactly. that's clearly that an wasn't that did turn out to be an accident. It was suspected to be to be fall play was not. This was set, uh, talking about the differences as far as locations, this was set in the no-name metropolis of uh, Detroit, Co- Detroit Cogland. <laughs> Detroit Cogland, yes. It's an agglomeration of Detroit, Chicago, and, Chicago and Cleveland, because yes. why not? And this is, you know, in other important instances, this is the introduction of, of course, the title Cat. Coco mm-hmm. is the cat who could read backwards, and it's, it's, his, it's his book as much as it is Quill's. I did mention on the very first episode where we were kind of introducing this whole thing that food often plays a big, big part uh, yes, in some, these stories. What are some notable foods that are in this? Um, perfectly cooked eggs and terrible steak. Hmm. There's a there's a scene where Quill is trying to figure out how to take an artist's wife to dinner for something. It's not Zoe Lambeth. It's the other one whose story really doesn't have anything to do with the with the actual mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and the he makes a mistake of asking the uh, paper papers photographers. So they send him a place where they where the biggest recommendation is they've got they've got a steak the size of your shoe. Ugh. The description is yes, it was the size of a shoe and just as flavorful. Oh no. Yep. Now the perfectly cooked eggs. What? What style are they perfectly cooked? Uh, I believe they were poached in oh, this particular poached? case. Oh, my. One of uh, GBM3's big briberies with Quiller and was inviting him up for breakfast. Interesting. Kind of lovely. And the other thing that pops up a lot in these books is tomato juice. Um, no, it makes sense, as you mentioned in the first Quill episode. is a recovering alcoholic. Exactly. And this is his – he's coming back into this very drinking-heavy culture 
Um, and it's, it's a, you know, it's, they stop him cold. This is, this is the only book, by the way, where somebody questions him not drinking. Hmm. I, I really have to say it's nice in any of the other books that the minute he says, oh, I don't, I don't indulge. It doesn't matter. They hand him a ginger ale. They hand him, they always have something else for him. It's not the, that's just John Mulaney thing, you know, hmm. I know you don't drink. Would that be good for you? This shampoo cleaner here? Would that be <laughs> exactly. good for you, Mulaney? That's the way it should be. Just, oh, you don't, oh. You don't, don't drink? Go. Here, let me get you something else. You want orange juice? Do you want uh, Coke? Yeah. That's yeah. the way it should be. Have the other options. And as I'm reading through this book, I I'm, I'm, I'm tend to make side notes about mm-hmm. various things that pop up. So, look, my dear, as someone with a mustache, uh-huh. how does one smooth a mustache with one's knuckles? It's constantly described as the way that Quillerlin, it should also be mentioned, has... Um, some hypersensitivity with his with a his large luxuriant mustache, which is the prominent feature of his face. Um, there is some theory uh, he he believes it may be um, it it may be slightly psychic, much like a cat's whiskers mm. com- combination between the two. But he's constantly described as smoothing his mustache with his knuckles, and it's like, do you- well, if you're doing it that way, yeah, where you're kind of like pawing at it, like you're squ- like you're just kind of running your knuckles along it, like you're doing it on like I'm doing the table that. That makes no sense. Why would you do it that way? It seems more as if it's, you know, he's just kind of brushing it along as if he's clearing it from his the uh, his upper lip. Okay. Just maybe to kind of just, um, as an affect. It's clearly something that may sound like an affectation since it, it has no, <laughs> se- it, there, no real sense for it. Absolutely. Well, I was curious. Not being in possession of a mustache myself, I couldn't figure out how it worked. I just I'll run my fingers or a comb through it, so... <laughs> There you go. Not my, you know, um, over my knuckle. Yes. <laughs> As I've mentioned throughout this summary, it's the 60s. And some of the, that's just the way it was, um, really good. struck me as very mm-hmm. funny. Um, one of them is that this book is old enough that the electric pencil sharpener is considered a newfangled gadget. <laughs> There is a copy boy in the, one of the very first scenes who is sharpening a pencil and Quill just can't stand the sound. <laughs> so apparently you have to suffer and, and actually do the turning pencil sharpeners, which, by the way, you know, I still had in, a, in, a, in an elementary school classroom when I was in elementary oh, school. When I, where I went to college, there were one in every single room on the third floor of Taylor Hall. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I remember sharpening my pencils very well with that thing, Dr. Edwards. <laughs> The book is also written with quite a bit of, that's just the way it was, sexism. Mm-hmm, um, there's mm-hmm. the, the description of the inevitable girl reporter. A photographer rep- recites some woman's chest, waist, and hip measurements. The butch lesbian, as we mentioned, literally mm-hmm. named Butchie, um, without an actual name Not attached to trying. that. Yeah. It's... Jeez. To some extent, I don't know whether this is Lillian Jackson Braun writing the way that she thinks a man sees the world in 1960s or whether it was actually her experience of being a woman in a man's world in the 1960s. Mm. Uh, I think that pops up more in the next book, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Sure. This book, however, does when it starts off with a bang at one thing that Lillian Jackson Braun does exceptionally well, and that is the environment. You can feel the cold of walking of Quillerin walking mm-hmm. down the streets. You can you can hear the quiet when he walks into a, a space that's been deserted. She writes atmosphere so well. And it's another reason that I really love going back to these books and to be writing about the the 1960s art scene, which mm-hmm. is a hugely dramatic time to to be alive and be an artist and have all these things. Sure. To have that wonderful description of what it might have been like and know that she was actually there mm-hmm. writing about this as a contemporary. And living all the way through it. Yeah. It's really, really cool. So for that, it's it's really... 
it's really distinctive and it's really a, a signature of her books that she writes atmosphere so well. Also adding in the world of newspapers with multiple daily editions, as we mentioned, the world of press clubs, smoking in public places. Quillerin in these books smokes a pipe. It's we're, we're so far removed now that I remember as a former smoker having to, you know, every basically hour or so, whatever I was doing, whether it was at work, taking a step outside and having to go a good distance away from the door. But I also distinctly remember, too, my parents used to be heavy smokers. You know, smoking or non-smoking at restaurants, which you can't do that anymore. No. And, you know, you would go to the smoking section or, uh, yeah, it, it, that's, that still is a foreign thing to me. It, not, not a for, it's, it's foreign enough, but it's still close enough that I can remember smoking in a public place, which to some people, you know, born a couple generations after us would be blown away by that. Yeah, absolutely. How the world has changed. Indeed it has. And for the better in that regard. I, I really have to, I really have to agree. Um. So let's talk about how this mystery really worked as a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, she definitely sidesteps the Agatha Christie trope of it's always the most unlikely character. It's really hard to, say, to predict who the killer is. Because you, you don't see him until... You've never met the killer until mm-hmm. he actually appears at the very end. It's known to the victim, but he's not known to the reader. So mm-hmm. interesting dramatic irony there. I think that's fun. Mm-hmm. Women aren't really given much agency to back up just a second with the mysteries. As I'm reading through this, especially knowing it's written by a woman, it's kind of depressing to see that women aren't really given that much agency. Sure. They're dismissed, uh, considered fragile, in need of protection, or loud and abrasive and to be avoided at all costs, mm-hmm. or somewhat pitied in the case of Butchie. By the way, she's also obsessed with who women were before they married. There's a whole big thing about so-and-so was a so-and-so before she married. Like their last name. Yes, last old, name and old money. Old money. Old, Very obsessed with that. All the old family names that you find in yeah. any big city, I'm sure. Yeah. So again, back to how the murder, how the how the mystery worked. I think it works really well. It's it's very personal, which is an interesting thing to find in a big city mystery. This is not some random serial killer. This is somebody with a um, with a specific reason for murder. Mm-hmm. In in both cases. Um, and it's, and, and again, all of the murders are very up close and personal with, right, right. with stabbings. That, that's not the way you kill somebody from a distance. No, no with a knife and with a chisel, especially. Yeah. No, not so much. So I think that's really fun. Um, so one of the things that I'd like to start doing as we go through these books is kind of develop our own rating system. Um, ah, okay. as we're doing this. So, well, so indulge me, if you will. I, yes, always. So with this, we'll have the rating system of, uh, for the best, most fun, most fun mystery. Can't wait to read it again. We will call it, uh, four paws up. Um, <laughs> uh, pretty darn good. I enjoyed it. I might read it again. I might, I might read, read it again a little bit later. We'll call that three paws up. Um, two paws up. Solid time. I enjoyed it. Might not want to go back to it again. And one paw up is, well, that happened. Okay. So there's my theory. No, I like it. I like it. And especially if we get to the books that I'll be reading slash listening to, exactly. I can definitely get behind that. So where would you say, as far as paws go, that the inaugural book uh, rates? I would put this one between a two and a three. Um, leaning towards a three. We'll call it a, th- you know what? Let's just call it a three. Okay, three paws up. It's... It's enjoyable. It's creating. It's creating a world. It's not a predictable mystery, which is something that always annoys me. Um, so I like not knowing who it is until the very end, um, mm-hmm. even if the tactics in, involved are literally you have you've never met this person before. Um, so it's a little bit underhanded with that. That's why I. That's why I want to slightly downgrade it. But since we're doing a four a four point rating, we'll call it a three. No, it's all three. I think that's more than fair, especially if it's. You know, setting the tone of what the books are going to be and who Quill, uh, Quillerin is a character. It's, mm-hmm. 
good to kind of have that foundation. So excellent, excellent. Yeah. And just the descript- just the names alone, I would give it a four. <laughs> Absolutely, and the names are always great in this book, in these books. So we'll we'll have a lot of fun with those as we go further into the series. So, and, and we may have already answered this, but this mystery works for you. It's believable. It's not too... Uh... It does. I really, I really enjoy it. Again, three paws up for that. Um, it's... Mysteries that are personal are... Are more engaging to me rather than the hunt for a serial killer or mm-hmm. the hunt for an unexplained motive. It's... We know what the motives are. Sure. And I also kind of like the fact that sometimes they don't get caught. Oh, interesting. In the series, they don't. Um, yeah. Well, if you consider it, GBM three didn't get did, technically didn't get caught. Well, true. It, it's I mean, simply he, you know there there's simply mounting evidence that really strongly implies that he was the one who killed Earl Lambeth. Okay, but I he see didn't. What you're you know, he not, not everybody comes to justice. And as a lawyer's daughter, knowing that not everybody does come to justice, um, mm. having that written and written well, where they don't come to justice, but they still get their comeuppance. That's kind of fun for me. It's a sort of poetic justice. In exactly. A way. Exactly. <laughs> well, any uh, so any other final thoughts uh, about this book? It, it's a real slam bang of a start to a series. Slam bang of a start. Susan Rhymesdorf Terry. That'll be the tagline. <laughs> yeah. If anybody, if anybody cared to still to re, to reprint these, there you go. There's my uh, there's my tagline for you. Uh, I like it. Slam bang of a start, and this is one down, twenty eight to go. Yeah. And so, uh, what is the next book in the series that we're going to be uh-huh. for those who are uh, who, who may reading be reading along, along with us? If, the, if you are reading along at home, our next book is going to be the second book in the series. That is the cat who ate Danish modern. Who ate not modern Danish? No. Which is sounds tasty, but that's not what what they ate. <laughs> no, it is Danish modern, and we'll talk about what Danish modern is and how that affects the story when we get there. I can't wait. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Cadded Podcast. I am Luke Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Susan Romsdorf Terry. And until next time, happy sleuthing. <laughs>